And there's a cry room in case uh, you guys forgot. You know, several years ago, uh, when I first began publicly sharing what God had done in my life through faith in Christ, I was called at the 11th hour to be a substitute uh, for a highly publicized, popular speaker who had an unexpected emergency. And, you know, I can only imagine the night before uh, what, what was going to happen the next day when people showed up. They invited their guests to hear somebody, and it's like, oh, and here's this guy instead. So, you know, when I found out at the last minute and I agreed to do it, I thought, you know, I'd be prepared with some type of opening story that would, you know, try to break the ice a little bit. And so I began my talk by explaining that I recognized that I was a substitute in every sense of the word and certainly not a replacement uh, for the scheduled speaker. I had an English teacher once who, who helped me understand this, and she explained the difference. She said that if you have a window and uh, one of the, the pieces of glass break in the window... And you, you know, and you replace it uh, with cardboard and duct tape, then that's a substitute. said, so now, if you repair it with a new piece of glass or a pane of glass, then that would be a replacement. And so I said, I know I'm definitely here today as a substitute. And, you know, a few people laughed. That was funny. Afterwards, I was greeted by uh, several folks, you know, thanking me for being there, especially under tough circumstances. And this one little old lady came up to me and she said, Chuck, I just want you to know you weren't a substitute at all. You were a real pain. <laughs> yeah. you, know, and, and, you know, and you, you go, thank you. <laughs> you know, sometimes, and some of you guys do that to me on a regular basis. You just kind of throw something out and I go, uh, thank you, I think. I don't know. But uh, today in our ongoing study through Luke's eyewitness account of the life of Jesus, we come to a passage that will focus on what it means to be a substitute from God's perspective. So if you've got your Bible, turn with me to Luke chapter 23, and we'll start with verse 1 through 25, where we learn what it means when God says that Jesus gave his life the just for the unjust. Luke chapter 23, starting with verse 1. It says, then the whole body of them arose and brought him before Pilate. And they began, accuse, they began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation, forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar, and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. Pilate asked him, saying, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him and said, It is as you say. And Pilate said to the chief priests and the multitudes, I find no guilt in this man. But they kept on insisting, saying, if he, he stirs up the people, teaching all over Judea, starting from Galilee, even as far as this place. But when Pilate heard it, he asked whether the man was a Galilean. And when he heard that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who himself also was in Jerusalem at that time. And he, began, he questioned him at some length, but he answered him nothing. And the chief priests and the scribes were standing there accusing him vehemently. And Herod, with his soldiers, after treating him with contempt and mocking him, dressed him in a gorgeous robe and sent him back to Pilate. Now Herod and Pilate became friends with one another that very day, for before that they had been at enmity with each other. And Pilate summoned the chief priests and the rulers and the people and said to them, You brought this man to me as one who incites the people to rebellion. And behold, having examined him before you, I have found no guilt in this man, regarding the charges which you make against him. Nor has Herod, for he sent him back to us, and behold, nothing deserving death has been done by him. 
I will release him, therefore. I will punish him and release him. Now he was obliged to release to them at the feast one prisoner. But they cried out all, the, all together, saying, Away with this man and release for us Barabbas. He was one who had been thrown into prison for a certain insurrection made in the city and for murder. And Pilate, wanting to release Jesus, addressed them again. But they kept on calling out, saying, Crucify him, crucify him. And he said to them the third time, Why? What evil has this man done? I find in him no guilt, demanding death. I will therefore punish him and release him. But they were insistent with loud voices, asking that he be crucified. And their voices began to prevail. And Pilate pronounced sentence that their demand would be granted. And he released the man they were asking for, who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, but he delivered Jesus to their will. As we learn from this account in Luke's gospel, Jesus is put on trial before Pilate and Herod at this particular point. And what is particularly significant is that this encounter can be summed up by Pilate's own pronouncement. If you look at verse 14, he says, I have found no guilt in him. You know, the NIV says, I have found no basis for a charge against this man. And what he was saying was, is that it's a legal phrase saying that in my position, as I examine the evidence and I examine the facts, literally it means that there was not one shred of evidence against against Jesus and his accusations against him had no merit. And so really that's what we're going to take a look at as we go through this particular passage. There's five things that we're going to observe. The first one is, you know, you'll notice that the accusations before Pilate were not convincing. In verses 1 through 5, and also we see if we jump down to verse 22, if you want to circle this, there were three different times where Pilate said, hey, he's not guilty. He didn't do anything. I have found no guilt in this man. In verse 14, we see that. In verse 4, we see the same thing. Pilate said to the chief priests and the multitudes, I find no guilt in this man. Then we jump down to verse 22 and we find the same thing. I have found in him no guilt. And Pilate, you know, understood the importance of carrying out justice. For justice and legality ruled the Roman world. They took pride in being a civilized world. You know, and also nobody knew Roman law better than the procurators who ruled with all the authority that was given by the emperor. So it was important to Rome to follow legal protocol. And for Pilate to do anything otherwise, you know, he could not only lose his job, but he could lose his life. And so by perverting justice, and he's looking at this, and he's stuck dealing with this, saying, what am I going to do? They keep bringing this guy to me, and he's innocent of everything. I don't find anything that, that we can hold him on, and what am I going to do with him? And uh, Acts chapter 16, when you get a chance, you can read it sometime about the Apostle Paul when he was arrested, and uh, they didn't know he was a Roman citizen. And they tried him in a way that was against his rights as a Roman citizen. And they wanted to try to shove him out the back door and say, hey, you know what? Well, sorry, our bad. Why don't you go ahead and leave? And he said, oh, no, I'm not going out the back door. I'm going out the front door. And I'm gonna want, I want everybody to know what you guys did here. Because after I leave, then we're setting a precedent on how you're going to treat God's people after this fact. And so I'm not walking out the back door, sneaking out. You're not getting away with this. And he said, hey, you know what? What you did was wrong. And there are times in our life where we can use the legal system that God has given us in order to expose those things that are wrong before God. Now, there are other times where they may not be of any benefit or consequence whatsoever, but we need to recognize and understand that God has established authority. When you look at the trial of Jesus, Pilate had authority to release him or to kill him. And as he examined the charges and the evidence, he proclaimed, I find no guilt in him. 
And the reason for it was, look at the three charges that were brought against them. They were saying that, you know, they began to accuse him in verse 2. They said, we found this man misleading our nation. And I was like, well, how? When you talk about a general, just a vague charge, it's kind of like when somebody says, this person's just, I, I just don't like him. Okay, well, why? Well, I don't know, I just don't. And there's no specific reason, there's no charges against them, there's nothing you can hold, you know, hold up and say, well, here's why. It's just, I don't. And in this particular case, they said, well, they misled the, he, he's misleading the nation. Well, how? There was nothing specific. So they went on to the next thing and said, well, you know what? And he also is forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar. Now, we know through our, our account through the Gospel of Luke, if you just turn back to Luke chapter 20, that wasn't true. Because if you remember, they tried to trap Jesus in this particular issue as far as paying taxes was concerned. And in Luke chapter 20, verse 20, and they were watching him and sent spies who pretended to be righteous in order that they might catch him in some statement so as to deliver him up to the rule and the authority of the governors. Hey, we're trying to trap him. And they questioned him saying, teacher, we know that you speak and teach correctly and you're not partial to any but truth, but teach the way of God in truth. Is it lawful for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus detected their trickery and said to them, Show me a denarius, whose likeness and inscription does it have? And they said, Caesar's. And he said to them, Then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they were unable to catch him in a saying in the presence of the people, and marveling at his answer, they became silent. So when you go back to the charge, did he ever say, Don't pay your taxes? He said, Render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and unto God the things that are God's. And so there's no guilt as far as that charge was concerned. The third one was, it says, and they say, that he was saying that he himself is Christ, a king. He was claiming, and everybody knew it, Jesus was claiming to be the long-awaited Savior of God. He is the Christ. He is the Son of the living God, as exactly as Peter bore witness and confessed. And so Pilate looked at him and said, are you the king of the Jews? And he said, it is as you say. And so Pilate went, well, I don't have a problem with that. You know, because there's a lot of different gods in the Roman culture, and as long as you're not causing any problems or creating a rebellion or telling people not to obey Rome or telling people not to pay taxes, you know what? It's no big deal to us. And so he was innocent. And the whole purpose of, of understanding this is that it's important for you and I to recognize that the testimony of Scripture is so clear that Jesus was innocent of all charges that were brought before him. And why is that important? Turn with me in Matthew chapter 27, where we see even Judas bore the same testimony. The man who betrayed him, feeling guilty for what he did in Matthew chapter 27. Look at verses 1 through 5. Now when morning had come, all the chief priests and the elders and the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. And they bound him. And led him away and delivered him to Pilate, the governor. Then when Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that he had been condemned, he felt remorse. And he returned the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priest and the elder, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. But they said, what is that to us? See to it yourself. And he threw the pieces of silver into the sanctuary, departed, and he went away and he hanged himself. Could you imagine the guilt that was just tearing up Judas's life? Here was a man who he knew what he did was wrong. He knew the man he turned over was innocent of any charges against him. He came to him with this guilt that he had. And I want to explain to you there's a difference between being guilty and, 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 and confessing our sins before God. 
It's one thing to feel bad about what we do. It's another thing to acknowledge before God what we have done and seek his forgiveness. There's a whole bunch of people who run around feeling bad for what they do. But, you know, that's not repentance. Uh, that's not, a, 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 you know, a, a sorrow unto repentance. You know, we need to recognize that there are times in our lives where when we do what's wrong before God and we're convicted of it, that we say, you know what, God, confession is agreeing with God. You're right. If we confess our sins, if we agree with God what we've done, what we've done is wrong, you know, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. See, but Judas felt guilty. Because he knew what he did was wrong, Jesus was innocent, and that guilt led him to a point where he thought he was beyond God's hope, and he went out and he hung himself. You know, not only did uh, Judas find him innocent, but flip over to uh, verse 19 in the same gospel account in Matthew, and see that in verse 19, and while he, speaking of Pilate, was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent to him saying, have nothing to do with that righteous man, for last night I suffered greatly in a dream because of him. You know, God warned Pilate's wife to warn Pilate, and in this dream that she had, she went, man, you know what? Don't have anything to do, and here's the important phrase, with this righteous man. This man has done nothing wrong. Don't mess this up. Innocent. You know, we go back to Luke's account and we see that Herod said the same thing. I have found, you know, I, I, I don't find anything wrong, nor has Herod, for he sent us back to him. You know, if you look at the dying thief, he said, this man has done nothing wrong. You know, we deserve what has happened to us in, in Luke 23, verse 41. For indeed, justly, we are receiving what we deserve for our deeds. But this man, speaking of Jesus, has done nothing wrong. The centurion said the same thing in verse 47. Now, when the centurion saw what had happened, he began praising God, saying, certainly, this man was innocent. Okay, what's the point? Don't miss it. The point is very simple, and that is this, that Jesus Christ was an innocent man. He knew no sin. He did no wrong. And the emphasis is, is that he was not guilty, that he was innocent, that he was a just man. He said, then why did they do this? Well, in Matthew's account, you know, Pilate said, hey, they brought him to me because they were envious. They brought him to me because, you know, he claimed to be God. And they didn't like that. Because they wanted that position of prominence. They wanted the position of authority. And so even Pilate, a man with little spiritual sensitivity, saw what was going on and said, hey, you know what? This is a joke. They brought him to me because they were envious of him. He claimed to be God. He was taking their, their thunder away. And you know what? And they wouldn't let it go. False witnesses then were then brought before him, and that was a sham and a joke as well. You know, what was so amazing is, is that when Jesus was, was, um, was accused, back at Matthew chapter 27, in verse 11, 14, we read, Now Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor questioned him, saying, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus said to him, It is as you say. And while he was being accused by the chief priests and elders, he made no answer. The, then Pilate said to him, Do you not hear how many things they testify against you? And he did not answer him with regard to even a single charge so that the governor was quite amazed. Could you imagine sitting and listening to this trial? Have you ever been to a trial where the defendant said nothing? A bunch of accusations are made and he just, Jesus just sat there. 
And the reason that he sat there, we're told in 1 Peter chapter 2, is that because he continued to entrust himself to God, the Father who judges righteously. Application time for us is that, you know, you and I will go through this life and we will be accused at different times of different things. And it's important that we recognize that we live our life in such a way that any accusations that are ever brought before us uh, hold no merit and have no substance because of how we live our life. Now the question is, how do we respond to those who accuse us? And I have found it best just to follow Jesus' example. You know what? I'm just going to trust God. God knows the truth. He knows all the details. He knows all the conversations. He knows the hearts of those who are involved in all of these things. And at the end of the day, you know what? I'm okay. I'm in God's hands. You know, and, and, you know, and it keeps us from getting ugly. It keeps us from getting bitter or embittered toward other people. You know, when you ask yourself the question, how do you normally respond when someone accuses you of something wrongly? Not many of us sit quietly like Jesus, trusting himself to God. You know, we've got to lay out all the facts. We're going to lay out all the evidence. We're going to make all the phone calls. We're going to get people on our side. We're going to get, you know, you know, our posse put together. You know, we're going to get our defense, you know, our defense witnesses lined up. You know, we're going to get depositions going. You know, it's like, yeah, you know, what, what an absolute just waste of time. Because there's more important things in life to do than that. You know what? And there's nothing more important than reaching this world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And when we're doing this kind of stuff, it just takes away from why we're here. So when we look at this, Jesus responded with truth and was perfectly righteous and bold in his response. He's to be our example. And what a great, uh, what a great uh, passage in 1 Timothy, if you want to look at that with me. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 11 through 16, we read these words. But flee from these things, you man of God, and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. Fight the good fight. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of eternal life to which you were called. And notice, and you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus who testified the good confession before Pontius Pilate. That you keep the commandment without stain or reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will bring about at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who alone possesses immortality and dwells in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see, to him be the honor and eternal dominion. Amen. He, he testified, he made the good confession. What was that good confession? He confessed before Pilate that he is the Christ. What's the good confession as far as God's concerned with his people? If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. For with the heart man believes unto righteousness and with his mouth he confesses unto salvation. If you want to make the good confession, the good confession before this world is that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God. He said to Pilate, I am as you say. That was the good confession. Jesus Christ, Son of God, Son of Man, Lord, Jehovah, to the glory of God. It's awesome. See, if Jesus could witness uh, the good confession before Pilate, we should be witnessing the good confession before the world that we live in. 
Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God. Number two, we see the appearance before Herod. If you want to go back to Luke chapter 23, you know, we see the appearance before Herod, um, you know, added really nothing but contempt and mockery to this whole process. You know, in verses 6 through 12, we see that when Pilate heard it, he asked whether the man was a Galilean. You know, and I love this because Pilate was sweating bullets at this point. He's like, how am I going to get out of this mess? And then when he heard that Jesus was a Galilean, he went, oh, stop, hold everything. A Galilean? Oh, well, you know what? He's not under my jurisdiction. Herod's in town, so I'm going to send him to Herod. Let Herod deal with him, and I don't have to worry about it. And you know what? Maybe I can wiggle my way out of this thing. And so they sent him to Herod, and he sent him to Herod, who himself also was in Jerusalem. Now, Herod was very glad when he saw Jesus, for he had wanted to see him for a long time, because he had been hearing about him and was hoping to see some sign performed by him. And so Herod's motivation in seeing Jesus wasn't to find truth. It wasn't to discover, you know, God's purpose and a plan for his life. It wasn't to see if, if Jesus was the Savior of the world, you know, the long-awaited promised one of God. Herod wanted to see Jesus so that Jesus would do some trick for him. You know, he heard about raising Lazarus from the dead. He heard about feeding the multitudes. He heard about, you know, healing countless numbers of people that had, you know, various diseases. You know, he had heard about all the things that Jesus was doing. And he thought, well, this would be cool. I'd like to see him do something like that. And so the point was, is that Herod's desire to see Jesus wasn't a sincere desire based on belief on who he was or what he had come to do, but it was a kind of a, a morbid curiosity that borderlined on entertainment. You know, and when I read this, I thought, man, you know, isn't that so true all too often today? You know, ask yourself the tough question. You know, why, why do you come to church? Do you come to church to be entertained? Do you come to church to uh, have your behavior that's wrong before God, you know, overlooked or endorsed? And, you know, you, hey, we all have problems. We all have difficulties. You know, you're doing better than you used to do. So don't worry about that one thing that, you know, you're still hung up on. You know, well, you know why? Why do you go to Bible study? You know, you have to ask yourself the question, am I here because I want to hear from God? I want to hear his truth. I want his spirit to convict me of areas that I'm wrong before God. Bring him to the light so that I can confess those, turn from those, and live in a manner that's more worthy of my calling. You know, because the Bible says that, you know, in our, these end times that people will gather together because they want to have their ears tickled. They want to be entertained. They don't want to walk away feeling convicted about sin in their life because, we, you know, we don't really want to talk about sin in our culture. But the reality of it is, is that, you know, that's the difference between a person who is seeking God and a person like Herod who is just seeking entertainment. And I, I can't answer that for you, but it's something that you have to answer and that God knows when it comes to your heart. But my challenge to you would be this, you know, when we come and we get into the Word of God together, come with an open heart. Come with an open mind. If there's any wicked way in me, Lord, if there's anything that I'm doing that's wrong before you, then expose it so that I can agree with you that what I'm doing is wrong and repent and to turn from it and then walk in a manner that's more worthy of how I should live as a believer in this culture so that I can be that light that you say that I am and I can be that salt that creates a spiritual thirst. You know, that's why Jesus warned, what good is the salt if it becomes tasteless? You know, if our lives are so conformed to this world that we have become tasteless to those around us, what impact are we having? What difference does our life make? You know, and at the end of the day, really, it comes down to what, what difference has your life made for the kingdom of God? And it's going to de be determined by 
how you've lived it. See, Jesus didn't even speak to Herod. And I've said it before, there's no worse place to be in life than when God has nothing to say to you any longer. I mean, that's as bad as it can get. There is no worse place to be. And it says he questioned him at great length. And in the original language, it means that this went on and on for a long time. It wasn't just two or three questions. This could have went on for hours. And Jesus just stood before him. And he had nothing to say to him. And you know why that is? Because God's not into playing games with us. He's not into playing games with people who try to throw out trick questions. He's not into playing games with people who want what they want when they want it. And God knows our hearts. And you know why God doesn't play games? Because this is even more important than life or death. This is about eternal life and eternal death. And it's not funny to God when we play games with God. Are you playing games with God? Or are you seeking his truth? Are you open to what he has to say? Are you willing to turn from your sin and to do what's right before God? See, God knows our hearts. He knew Herod was messing, just messing around, and he had nothing to say to him. I pray that that's not the case for many of us, that we haven't gotten so far beyond God wanting to speak to our hearts. I pray that God continues to tug at our hearts so that we can hear the voice of the Spirit and do what he calls us to do. You know, when we look at this, you know, our Lord didn't have one word for him. And even Herod couldn't add a single shred of evidence against Jesus. Think about this. You know, this guy was just wicked, man. He came from a wicked family. He was a wicked man. We see that in how Jesus was ridiculed and mocked, how they put a robe on him, how they sent him back to Pilate. We see all of this, and you know what? And yet even he came to the conclusion, this is an innocent man. I'm an evil man, and this guy's an innocent man. I'm unjust, and he's just. And I can't even come up with a phony charge against him. So now we go back to the attempt of Pilate to release Jesus was again proof of his innocence in verses 13 through 17. Notice, Pilate summoned the chief priests and the rulers and the people, and they said to him, hey, you brought this man to me as one who incites the people to a riot. He goes, or rebellion, and behold, having examined him before you, I found no guilt in this man regarding the charges. No, nor has Herod. He sent him back to us, and behold, nothing deserving death has been done by him. I will therefore punish him and release him. Now, he was obliged because of the feast to release one prisoner. And so we see that, you know, Pilate is trying very hard, and I've already told you why. His wife told him, hey, you know what? Don't get involved in this. And so you know that that's bothering him, that his wife would come to him and say, hey, this guy's a righteous man. He's hearing all the other evidence. He sees that there's nothing there, and he's squirming. And he has to make a decision. He has to decide whether he will do what is right or he will be conformed to this world and not transformed. That he will do what is politically uh, the easiest thing to do. And many times in our lives we're forced into that position. Will we do what is right and uphold what is right, regardless of whatever the personal cost? Or will we come up with some politically correct way to try to make it all work out and please everybody? And all I can tell you is the word of God is clear. You know, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. You know, don't, don't be like everybody else. Do what's right before God. 
You know, the point is, Pilate recognized it was envy that motivated the religious leaders to want Jesus dead. Why were they envious? Because the people came and began to worship Jesus, and they wanted the people to worship them. And it really comes down to this. There's only one God, and none of us are him. And so either we worship him, and we point other people to worshiping him, or we want the praise and the accolation that goes to God. See, they didn't want to give it up. They wanted to hang on to it. And that envy led them to do what we see before them. You know, we all need to submit to the word of God and his authority. See, this is a very clear and present danger that all leadership must recognize. And that is the danger of becoming our own gods. Of wanting to have the recognition that only God deserves to have. And so if these religious leaders were truly seeking God's will, they would have seen the overwhelming evidence that was clearly shown in God's word that Jesus is the Christ. Number four, look at the attitude of the religious leaders that, who also condemned him without a cause. Verses 18 through 24, But they cried out altogether, saying, Away with this man and release for us Barabbas. He was the one who had been thrown into prison for a certain insurrection made in the city and for murder. And Pilate, wanting to release Jesus, addressed them again, saying, but, addressed them again, but they kept on calling out, saying, Crucify, crucify him. And he said to them the third time, Why, what evil has this man done? I have found in him no guilt demanding death. I will therefore punish him, which was wrong anyway. He didn't have to punish him. He was trying to come up with a politically correct way to at least, okay, well, if we can beat him a little bit, maybe that'll be satisfactory. He said that, you know, but they were insistent with loud voices asking that he be crucified. And their voices began to prevail. And what it means is that they just basically wore him down. Isn't it amazing that just a few days earlier that this same multitude of people were crying out, Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And they were pulling down palm fronds and branches. And they were, you know, they were giving him royal robes. And they were recognizing him as Lord and Savior. And man, it didn't take but a day or so before their whole attitudes and their minds changed. And see, that's something we've got to examine about ourselves as well. Those who profess faith in Christ, how do you know whether it's of God or not? How do you know you've really been born again? How do you know that it's by the, the will of God and not by your own human efforts? And the answer is very simple, and that is that you will continue to keep the faith. See, you know, the sower and the seed was there were those who received the word gladly. I see that on a regular basis in many places where I speak, many places where I preach. People say, oh, man, you know what? That, 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 that changed my life. What changed your life? See, only God can change a life. See, only God can change a heart. And if a person genuinely repenting of their sin and trusting in Christ, his death on the cross, and the power of his resurrection, the Bible says we're born again by the will of God, not by our own human efforts. How do we know if a person's really of the, you know, a child of God, those who believe in his name? Well, the answer is by the evidence that exists once that profession or confession is made. Are you walking in a manner that's worthy of your calling? Do you live a life that's consistent with what a Christian should be doing? Things that we say, the things that we do. See, we see what happens here is these same people that one day were like, oh yeah, praise the Lord. Two days later, we're yelling, crucify him. Guess what? I'm thinking there was no genuine life change experience that took place in these people's lives. 
And the same thing happens where we see people that they receive the gospel gladly. But when the worries of the world come along and persecution and and, and the worries of riches and all these things come and crowd out the word, then there's no fruit, there's no evidence, there's nothing that's there. See, that's why Paul said, you know, I fought the good fight, I've kept the faith, I've finished the course. And they're lying ahead of me or waiting me is this crown of righteousness. See, I know what's coming up because, you know what? Because I'm still walking in the faith. And there have been a lot of times where I came to crossroads where I had to make decisions. But you know what? I chose to continue to walk with my Savior. See, how about you? See, the attitude of the religious leaders was that, you know what? We're not going to do this. Well, now, what's interesting is that Pilate tried to play on the Roman custom of emulating the Day of Atonement by releasing a human scapegoat once a year. And Pilate chose a man. He was convinced there's no way that people would choose him. I, I'm absolutely convinced of that. I said, hey, man, this guy's a rebel. He incited the people to riot, and he's a murderer. And, well, we can, leave, we can let him go, or we can let Jesus go, who I've told you over and over again is innocent. Who do you want me to let go? And they shouted out, Barabbas. And Pilate was done because he wasn't willing to do what was right, and he gave in. And you see, that leads us to our fifth and final observation. Pilate's act of releasing Barabbas demonstrated the purpose of Christ's death. And and please don't miss this. In verse 25, And he released the man they were asking for, who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, but he delivered Jesus to their will. Everything is all in the predetermined plan of God. See, God's got it all under control. There's no panic in heaven, only plans. Jesus was released. Jesus was not released, but Barabbas was. And the reason for it is found in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21. Listen to these words. And God made him, speaking of Jesus, who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. God made him, Jesus, the just, who knew no sin. He made him sin on our behalf, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Peter later, inspired by the Spirit of God, would write in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18, these words. For Christ also died. For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, in order that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Barabbas, the unjust, guilty of rebellion and murder, was set free. On the other hand, Jesus, the just, guilty of nothing, who knew no sin, was crucified in the place of the man who was guilty. Men and women, that is the point of the cross. Jesus Christ died in our place. The just for the unjust. He is our scapegoat, our substitute, 
And because he did this, we can be set free from the wrath and judgment of God, all who repent and believe upon him. In closing, back in the days of the Great Depression, there was a Missouri man named John Griffith, who was the controller of a great railroad drawbridge across the Mississippi River. One day in the summer of 1937, he decided to take his eight-year-old son, Greg, to work with him. At noon, John Griffith put the bridge up to allow ships to pass and sat on the observation deck with his son to eat lunch. Time passed quickly. Suddenly, he was startled by the shrieking of a train whistle in the distance. He quickly looked at his watch and noticed that it was 107. The Memphis Express, with 400 passengers on board, was roaring toward the raised bridge. He leaped from the observation deck and ran back to the control tower. And just before throwing the master lever, lever, he glanced down for any ships below. There a sight caught his eye that caused his heart to leap poundingly into his throat. Greg, his son, had slipped from the observation deck and had fallen into the massive gears that operate the bridge. His left leg was caught in the cogs of the two main gears. Desperately, this father's mind whirled to devise a rescue plan. But as soon as he thought of a possibility, he knew that there was no way that it could be done. Again, with alarming closeness, the train whistled and it shrieked in the air. He could hear the clicking of the locomotive wheels over the tracks. That was his son down there, yet there were 400 passengers on the train. John knew what he had to do, so he buried his head in his left arm and he pushed the master switch forward. The great massive bridge lowered into place just as the Memphis Express began to roar across the river. And when John Griffith lifted his head with his face smeared with tears, he looked into the passing windows of the train. There were businessmen casually reading their papers, finely dressed women in the dining car sipping coffee, and children pushing long spoons into their dishes of ice cream. No one looked at the control house, and no one looked at the great gearbox. With wrenching agony, John Griffith screamed at the steel train, I sacrificed my son for you. I sacrificed my son for you people. Don't you care? And the train rushed by, but nobody heard the father's words. While that story may help us to some degree understand what God has done on our behalf, there are some distinct differences that I need to point out. First and foremost, Jesus, the son, didn't fall or accidentally end up in the switch room or on the cross. He willingly and obediently gave his life as a ransom for many. You know, everyone on that train was saved unbeknownst to them. And that's not true of all mankind when it comes to being saved from God's wrath and judgment for sin. Each one of us has a responsibility. The question in Scripture is put this way. What must I do to be saved from the wrath of God? And the answer is simple. You must believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ. You must repent of your sins and believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ. And you shall be saved. Have you repented of your sins? Have you believed upon the Lord Jesus Christ? You, the unjust, me, the unjust, do we believe that Jesus Christ, the just, took on our sins 
Do you believe that he took on your sins? Have you trusted in him as your only savior from God's wrath and judgment? See, the Bible is all about the just for the unjust. Jesus for you and I who believe upon him. Have you done so? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the clarity of your word that Jesus who knew no sin became sin on our behalf so that we might be made the righteousness of God. God, I pray for every person that hears these words that they understand clearly the need to acknowledge their sin before God, to repent and to turn from it, and to believe that Jesus Christ and him alone died willingly and obediently upon the cross so that we who believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. For those of us who have trusted in Christ, this morning we come to remember that sacrifice on our behalf, the brokenness of his body, the shedding of his blood, so that we could escape the wrath of God, the train wreck of humanity. We just praise you and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.